welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast, where we feature women who are nailing it in life. Hey, Legit Lady listeners, this is your host, Julie Fetterman, and welcome to the podcast where we feature impressive women to inspire the world. A lot has been happening here at the Legit Lady Podcast headquarters. Most notably, we've moved. So actually moved houses, and that has been taking a lot of time and effort. I'd been in my previous place for almost a decade, and that is a lot of time for a lot of stuff (laughs) to pile up. And I don't know if you've recently gone through a move, but my goodness, that is the big opportunity to show you exactly how much stuff you have and how much stuff you probably don't even need to have in your life. (laughs) So it's been a good, good time to just get rid of a lot of things that you don't need anymore. But still in true Legit Lady podcast fashion, I want to call out all of the great supporters that have been sending lots of great notes and sharing our podcast all over the world and spreading our wonderful news and stories with the people that you love or don't love in your life. (laughs) And a quick reminder, if you haven't done so already and you're listening to this podcast, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave us a five-star review with a quick sentence about your support for the Legit Lady podcast on iTunes. And if you're not into Apple, then feel free to leave us a five-star one-sentence review on Stitcher. All of that helps boost us up in the podcast listings, and it helps other people find the podcast too. So I really would appreciate that. Take a couple seconds out of your day, and you would make mine even better. And the other piece of support, if you have a dollar or two or three to spare, then a great way of supporting the podcast is to take us out for a digital coffee or drink or maybe a pastry or treat or something since it's getting colder out here. We need to put on our winter coats and hibernate, right? And the best way to do that is by leaving a quick tip in our online tip jar called coffee or Kofi. And the way to get there is ko-fi.com slash legit lady podcast. That's ko-fi.com slash legit lady podcast. And I want to give a little bit of love to Brandy who bought us a coffee or Kofi and said, keeping it legit with a cute little smiley face. Thank you so much, Brandy. We really appreciate you and we appreciate your support. So please keep the support coming, even if it's a quick email at legitladypodcast at gmail.com. We really appreciate it and it helps keep us going. And if you have a legit lady in your life that you think should be a great guest on the podcast, uh, we might go in more detail in, in another podcast and exactly what that looks like, but keep those referrals coming and we answer every single ones. We really appreciate all of that coming through. For this week's guest, I'll ask, what do blockchain and cryptocurrency have in common? Now, this isn't a bad joke, like why did the chicken cross the road? (laughs) But the answer is they can both be incredibly confusing and maybe even scary for people who haven't had a chance to learn about them before. Our guest 
is a strong thought leader in this space. And she sheds light on how these means of digital currency are actually strengthening economic opportunity across the world. She's the Senior Vice President of Global Partnerships at Shift Network. Please give a warm welcome to Suzanne Ennis. <laughs> so thank you so much, Suzanne, for being here. It is an absolute pleasure to finally connect mm-hmm, in real yeah, life. It took a while, yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's life. Well, welcome officially to the Legit Lady Podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Yay. I can tell in your voice. You're like, I'm very excited to be here. That's like I'm like on the brink of a heat stroke. It's the I heat. Know. It's not you. It's the heat. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> I know. Anyone who knows who lives in Canada or on the East Coast and not in Florida, you know that summertime is just tremendously surprising for us every single year. We're like, oh, it's so hot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, we are looking forward to getting to know you through 10 major questions Mm -hmm. and certainly going to be throwing in a whole bunch of cryptocurrency related questions Mm -hmm. as well. Since what you do, like you were talking about before we hit play, is constantly evolving and changing. And it's pretty darn exciting and quite confusing, actually, for a lot of people who Mm -hmm. aren't involved in that whole world. Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty wild. And, you know, as I just mentioned to you when we were offline, uh, there are days when I feel like I don't even know what the hell is going on. And I've been (laughs) in the industry for a while and I'm like really in the industry and it's constantly changing. But again, that's one of the best things about it. Um, So, yeah, looking forward to getting into it. That's humbling. It's better yeah. than feeling like you're you're plateaued in your no, work. No, no, yeah. I like perpetually feel like I'm the dumbest person in the room, which is a good thing because yep. there's like constant learning daily. Um, so yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, without further ado, let's dive in head first with question one, which is what advice would you give to your teenage self? So uh, this was an interesting question because... Um, I actually struggled at first to think of just one piece of advice because there's quite a few things I would I would say to like young Sue's. Um, number one would be sort of the adage um, measure once is it, is it measure once cut twice or measure twice cut once. Yep, the okay. second one for sure. Yeah, <laughs> so it's measure twice cut once is the advice that I would give to teenage Susie because I was never someone who had the patience to read the fine print or read the rule book. And I, and I, there is a very large part of me. Um, and what I would credit to a lot of my success is that I do think rules are meant to be bent. I do think rules, not necessarily meant to be broken, but, um, I'd say meant to be bent and growing up though, I never really took the time to read the fine print and a lot of things to do with life. And I actually wish I had, cause I probably would have saved a lot of time. Um, you know, even like even the other day, I, I guess I could say I haven't really changed. Uh, you know, I, I'm on this like big quest to like really get into making sourdough bread. Like I don't cook. That's not for me. But sourdough bread, I've got a friend who's like a sourdough sacred guru guy. Anyways, he got me into the idea of like oh, wow. cooking your own sourdough bread. But even the first time I tried to cook that loaf, I... I effed it up because I didn't read the ingredients properly. I didn't... Like I forgot about the yeast. Um... And yeah, I think I could have saved a lot of time in my youth if I had taken the time to slow down, learn the rules at work, learn, 
just just the rules in general and then bend them and then break them instead of sort of going at it my own way and having to kind of learn the hard way, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that certainly does. And I'm smiling because I work in technology, yeah. which is, a you know, I would say, similar but a slightly different version of where you operate mm-hmm. in today. And it feels like very often I have to fully embrace challenging those rules and those structures yeah. because those rules and structures only take you so far. And at the pace of which things can change in certain industries, they become a- archaic really quickly. For sure. I'm curious... At what point, or give us an example of a time in your youth where you really had that realization of, oh, no, I really wish I read that fine print. Because where my mind went was, and I don't know if anyone else listening had this experience, but there was almost this joke test that we had a couple of times in elementary school just to reinforce this lesson, where they gave us like, a hundred multiple choice questions or a hundred random questions. And some of them were really like fake, like write down your favorite, this, where do you grow up to here? And you know, it was just this whole wild goose chase. And I think it was the, the first question or the first part of the instruction said, read all of the questions before answering anything at the top. Yeah. So read everything first. And so most people were you know, I would say more type A and everyone just like filled in this entire ridiculous wild goose chase test. Right. And then at the end, the teacher says, hey, who actually read the instructions? And it was a tiny percentage of the class just yeah. smiling because they didn't have to fill in all of these random questions right, right, because right, they, right. they read the instructions. Excuse me. Yeah. So they read the instructions. So I'm curious when in your youth you had any of those major realizations. So... So I will say one in particular is um, I also suffer from like an overinflated sense of athletic ability. Like I always overestimate just how athletic, how athletically capable I am to do things. So when I was about 22 or maybe a bit younger, maybe 21, I decided to do a half triathlon or sorry, a half. Yeah. Sorry. A half Ironman. Wow. So it was like a three kilometer, four kilometer swim. And then I think it was like a 42 kilometer bike ride and then a 21 kilometer run. And obviously did no research on how to do this. Um, you know, I don't even think I got in a pool. I just thought, you know, like whatever, I'm pretty fit. Like I got this. (laughs) So didn't do any research at all. Show up on race day. Didn't know that you were supposed to have a giant wetsuit. Didn't know that you were supposed to have a certain type of like race day bike. Um, and effectively was like an epic fail of a half (laughs) iron man. Like I'm talking like I was literally being like trampled to death during the swim by people who were honestly like barking like seals, like in their wetsuits. Like, cause everyone, obviously it's a half try, sorry, a half iron man. So people were pretty, um, serious and had been training for years or at least a year. Uh, then I had the wrong bike. So I like fell off of the bike course. Cause I had basically like a 1970s bike with a basket on that, like your grandma would ride or that, <laughs> you know, you would ride with your lover in some sort of like movie montage. with people falling in picnic. love? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I didn't actually even end up finishing the half triathlon because, or the half Ironman, because I had just completely messed up everything. And they actually had to close the race because the race was over and I had basically spent eight and a half hours of just like suffering, but it was self-inflicted fucking everything up left, right, and center. So excuse my French. I don't know if we're allowed to yeah, swear you're on this totally podcast. allowed to swear. Yeah. So, so that's just like <laughs> one example of many where 
I, you know, if I had done the research, if I had read the rules, if I had read sort of even just recommendations and then put my own twist on it, I probably could have number one finished the half Iron Man and like had like a taste of glory instead of just epic failure. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of one example that definitely comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, that would, for me too, that sounds traumatizing. <laughs> yeah. It was like, there was a point in time where I remember I was, so yeah, I was almost like trampled to death on the swim and then running from the swim to my bike, I had this like nuclear camel toe and I didn't notice. And like my dad was in the audience, like, like screaming at me to fix my suit. But I just, I was so not athletically ready for the course that I was like dizzy and couldn't even see that like Mrs. B. Housen was like hanging out of my suit. Anyway, it was just like a nightmare, (laughs) but again, self-inflicted. And if I had done the research, if I had read the rules, I wouldn't have put myself in that situation. But yeah, I am really living for those nicknames. Yeah. You're Mrs. Behausen uh, and your yeah. nucle- nuclear camel toe. Yeah, it impressive. Was, yeah. So anyways. Oh, mortifying. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, look at you now. You are a stunning success in cryptocurrency land. Help us yeah. understand that journey of how you even got into that space. So my background is actually in finance and capital markets. Um, I grew up with two parents who were heavily in the finance scene. They're both They were both portfolio managers. And so... Um, I guess, you know, I, I just sort of, just sort of fell into it. Like I was just grew up in the finance scene, parents talking about stocks and markets and everything growing up. And so I started in capital markets, but then I got to a point where, um, I remember I was like 31 and it was Monday morning at nine 15 and I actually was Googling like signs you hate your job. Like, cause every day I would be like exhausted by Monday morning at nine 30, super understimulated, Um, and I just got to a point where I was like, I'm way too young to be this disinterested and this unpassionate about my job and about my life. Um, and so I started reading a lot about, um, well, again, I've always been very drawn to sort of anything alt, be it religions, be it people, be it and tech. And this is about three years ago. And I started reading about, um, really how blockchain technology was going to seriously disrupt a lot of the things that I was experiencing finance in terms of the demented ways and the prehistoric ways like business gets done and how blockchain was really going to solve a lot of this. So I, uh, yeah, I quit my job and then spent like two and a half years trying to prove to everyone in the blockchain and crypto industry that I wasn't just a finance douchebag, like bandwagoning. Um, this is about in early 2016. Um, and then, yeah, some, and then I finally got hired, uh, at a crypto exchange to run their wealth desk. And that's, that's no how it got started. Well, no, it was with, a, it was with a couple other people, but mm-hmm. yeah, it took me, it took me a while to get into it of like, you know, joining different fintechs and networking and really just trying to show people that I was serious about this and not just trying to get into an industry because it was hot and trendy. And, but yeah, again, it, it took truly becoming like feeling like I was dead inside at like 31 to, I think, make the change and not just do sort of what was kind of handed to me. Mm-hmm. Which takes a lot to be able to do that because many, many people, and at times even myself included, we, we fall into these ruts and we just for sure coast by for a while saying that this is fine. This is a paycheck. Yeah. Or isn't it normal to hate your job? Right. It's work. Oh, totally. Shoulder shrug. But it got to a point where it was like affecting my relationships. Like I, you know, I'd have boyfriends who were, you know, why don't you talk about your job? Like share your life with me, like share what's going on. And I was like, I have nothing to fucking say. I'm so <laughs> bored. 
<laughs> you know, like, and like, that's like, it, I've, that's no way to live. Like I, yeah. So yeah, it sounds like a sad trombone noise. Yeah, right. Like pathetic. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like my little sad little violin. <laughs> I know. So how how do your folks feel about this transition to crypto blockchain? Um, they're well, they were really supportive of it just because my mom was a portfolio manager in the eighties. So like Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. like douchebag central. Um, so she really, I think hated me getting into the industry in the first place because I think she saw a lot of the well she did experience firsthand a lot of sort of the male chauvinism and the the lack of depth that a lot of different sides of the industry have and I'm not saying that that's everyone in capital markets or that that's all capital markets is about but there's a there's a lot of lack of depth there and sort of purpose at least in my experience um and in my mother's experience so and don't get me wrong she was able to retire very early because of some of the success she had on bay street but um so yeah she she was very both my parents were very supportive of me um doing something that was a bit more soul fulfilling and less sort of numbers and profits and how do i hose this person to get this deal done and that sort of thing it seems like your mom was a badass yeah, she, yeah, she was. She really sort of has this like Mary Poppins vibe to her. But then when you like get her talking about some of the things she's done, it's like, yeah, she's pretty, she's pretty good. She yeah. tends to just float in on an umbrella. And yeah, exactly. Great. And like spoonful of sugar. And then realize she's like, <laughs> yeah, done some crazy shit. Oh, man. Well, this actually leads me to one of my several additional questions. Considering you mentioned it, talking about that capital markets, financial services industry being very traditionally male oriented. Yeah. How have you, because you said you've felt this way, you know, maybe every once in a while, how have you felt marginalized? So I have to say, um, like I grew up with a lot of boys when, like my dad is one of my best friends. I never, and, and truly I'd say for eight years when I was in capital markets, it was me on a team of like 10 or 12 guys And I never really noticed that I was the only chick um, or female, whatever. Um, (laughs) Just (laughs) just because I think I was so used to not looking at men as um, potential boyfriends just from growing up. Like my dad made me do judo for 15 years, you know, like, like, so, so I, I truly, I didn't find it that difficult until, um, there were a couple of, sorry, there were a couple of events that did happen while I was feeling sort of already kind of exiting in my mind, wanting to be in that industry that definitely made me realize that, wow, there are still some sort of processes or sort of some paradigms that exist. So like, I remember there was this golf tournament and it was for a client and in a territory that wasn't mine. It was someone else's. And this person, this guy was like, you got to come with me. You got to come with me. Like this client basically being like, this client just got divorced and he like really wants to bang you. And I was like, no. Like, and he was like, you know, we've got this big deal. Like it'll be part of building rapport, this, that, and the other. And I was like, no, like, no, forget it. That guy's gross and slash no. But then I'd say a week later, I got pulled into a meeting with my boss. So also my colleague's boss and he basically said that, you know, I wasn't being a team player. I should have gone to the golf tournament. Ugh. And again, that sort of struck with me. I was like, wow, that's really weird. You effectively wanted me to sort of like give the illusion of like whoring myself out. Like, no, that's not. 
Um, and then there was another time where, you know, we had a client and he like him and I bonded over. We both loved this certain author. Um, and he, you know, was insisting, you know, let me give you the book. Like we'll meet up. I'll give you the book. So, I ended up going out and just buying the book myself. And again, I got pulled into a room again by my boss and he was saying, you know, why didn't you just let him give you the book? Like that's part of building rapport. And I'm like, cause I would have had to go for drinks with him. I would have then had to like have a fucking lunch or like, like a dinner or something like that. And like Indigo was right there. Like I'm just going to buy. It. So just little things like that started happening where I started to realize like, wow, okay, this is not, it's, it's just not what I wanted. Like, I just felt like I was sort of being unfairly like things I was being asked to do things that really were beyond my comfort zone that I don't think that obviously a male, I don't think would have been asked to do. So, um, again, that wasn't my incent. Like that didn't incentivize me to leave the industry, but for sure that like, yeah, I would say definitely there were women. I was treated a bit differently in some ways for sure. Yeah. That's, that's awful. It's just, I mean, yeah, it's, it was a bit whack, but, um, I will say that I, I also don't agree with women that spend a little too much time talking about being a woman. Like, I think there's ways to exert influence and make change that doesn't have to be about like ringing a bell being like, I am female, hear me roar. Um, like Sheryl Sandberg and the CEO of Pepsi. So I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but go for it. Sheryl Sandberg and the CEO of Pepsi, who's an Indian woman, both say the same thing. Like instead of talking so much about being a woman in the workforce, like just, just do your job and do your job really fucking well. And like be the smartest person in the room and the funniest person in the room. And um, I do, there is a part of me that very much also does agree with that as well. Yeah. You know what? I see a lot of parallels even in say leaders and leadership, yeah. uh, great leaders do not go around saying, look at me, I'm an awesome leader and look at me leading. Yeah. They just are. And they exert yeah, that exactly. influence That's and they a inspire very good others. Example. Yeah. So I don't disagree with what you're sharing and it's just annoying that this bizarre double standard, even now in 2019, is oh, still very much a sure. thing, and especially in some of these industries. So that's why I was curious to hear about it. Yeah. You know what I will say, though? Um, one of the things, and I always say this when people ask me about what it's like working in blockchain and crypto, I find it is one of the most inclusive fucking industries and verticals I have ever and like worlds that I've ever experienced in my life. And I wonder if sometimes I wonder if it's because the technology basically comes from sort of like the bowels and the dark sides of the internet. And so you have these people who have been playing in the blockchain crypto scene from long before when it got popular. And oftentimes those people were gamers or like really fucking nerdy, mm -hmm. like just, you know, the type of people who spend their time like playing in alternate universes where there's like warlords and warlocks and like the love of your life is a lizard with tits or like a demogorgon. And the reason why I say that I see how that's manifested into the industry now is that, for example, my CTO is a um, transgender. And one of my favorite fucking things I've ever experienced so far working in this industry is that no one talked about it. No one fucking talked about it. It wasn't until eight months of working there that I found out she was transgender and I was like, this is amazing. No one talks about it. It's not a thing. And I think that's beautiful. Like that would never happen in finance. If that was finance, it would have been like 
probably on my the first day, someone thing. would have been like, okay, just so you know, in case you're not comfortable, like our CTO used to have a dick. And you know, like that, <laughs> that would 100% be a conversation that happens. But in crypto, it's like not even a thing. Yep. And if you even talk about it, it's like, you're the loser. Like you're, you're the problem. So anyways, I, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's it's, really it's great. It's my favorite thing in the world. It's almost, it's, it's, it's inclusive, almost I say band of misfits, but it's just it uh, is a band of misfits. Yeah, yeah, that sounds magical. And your merit is on your brain and your ideas. And like I've gone to meetings with very high big up bankers with um, you know some people that I work with, and they show up. One of them didn't even like get past security because they show up with in like velour suits and like weird different colored hair and like carrying some sort of instrument or anyways, but. Um, and so oftentimes they haven't gotten past security with at some of these banks, but then obviously we let them through and, you know, you put them in the meeting and they just blow these traditional finance guys away with your, their ideas and their minds. And it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter if they're wearing the velour suit and the, you know, the weird sneakers. Like, and the, I, again, I think that blockchain and crypto is really changing a lot of paradigms, not just from a tech perspective. Mm. Sounds like a much needed shakeup. Yeah, totally. So I have to ask the very obvious question yeah. for our dear listeners. Can you describe at a high level or define at a high level cryptocurrency and blockchain? Yeah, for sure. So <laughs> half the people are like scratching their heads. They're like, what? What is she talking about? <laughs> yeah, I know. I would say so blockchain, um, if I had to describe it, it's effectively a public bulletin board of the state of a business or the state of an account or really the state of any sort of um, thing that you want to look at. But, but I guess the point is, is that the blockchain is a public bulletin board and no one can change that public bulletin board unless everyone that's looking at that bulletin board agrees that that change should happen. And it's also public so that anyone can log in. It's, it's obviously a public bulletin board on the internet. Anyone can log in and see the state of affairs at that particular moment. Um, so it's sort of like a tamper-proof ledger of the state of affairs that anyone can see and no one can change unless everyone who's looking at it agrees that that's a change that should happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. And how do those changes happen and come into play. Yeah. That sounds exhausting. It's like, yeah, gotta... well, it's all, it's, it's through the technology itself. Um, ah. like if you're a miner, if you're hosting a node, I mean, we could really go down a rabbit hole going yeah, on yeah. about this, but, <laughs> but blockchain is basically, it's, it's a different way. It's almost like a public Excel spreadsheet. So if you're transacting with someone, um, there's a public bulletin board so that you can't get away with anything. Cause there's an audit trail as to who's tried to tamper or who's made changes, mm -hmm. um, and who approved it. Ah, so that, that is helpful. And then cryptocurrency baseline definition. Yeah. Uh, cryptocurrency, I would say, um, is like the currency of the internet. It's like a US dollar bill, but for the internet. Um, or if you're on the, if you can look at the internet as a highway, you could look at cryptocurrency as a different toll booth on the highway or a car that drives on the highway that you can create things with or, um, transport things with as well. Interesting. At what point do you see cryptocurrency eclipsing conventional 
currency or wealth. So there's a lot of debate about that. Like, is Bitcoin the new gold? And, you know, who's going to win gold or Bitcoin? And, you know, because they're both finite in value. Um, I think that I think that there's going to be a world where both can exist, where the U.S. dollar is still going to exist. But, you know, if I'm someone living in Venezuela um, and my government has inflated or Argentina and my government has effectively inflated my life savings away um, and I can't trust my government's monetary policy, I now have an alternative to that that is decentralized, that is not under government control. And that's Bitcoin. Um, So it's like a peer to peer uh, payment system on the internet again, where there's a public bulletin board as to who's paid who'd what, um, and where did that come from? So uh, the word "no central intermediary" is disrupt could potentially disrupt it. So, so I, again, I really do think that there's a place for both. That's really exciting. I'm so happy you're here. This is great. Yeah, I feel <laughs> like I kind of butchered those explanations, but yeah, I hope that that gives no, some that, sort of sense. That is helpful because yeah. I, I think for many of us, I would lump in like the average category who don't have too much exposure to it. And we'll see articles that pop up. We'll try to Google it. And it's sometimes those, it's the type of concept where the more you try to research, if it's not explained to you in a visual enough way or in a way that you can oh, comprehend, absolutely. you're like, oh, I'm walking away from this being 10 times more confused. Oh, completely. When I mean, the concept is probably, from what it sounds like, relatively straightforward. The inner workings of it seem pretty complex, but at least the idea of it, the concept of it, which is cool. Yeah, it's just the idea that there's no centralized authority saying whether or not something is true. It's sort of math and cryptography um, speaking that are the sources of truth. Which is great because so much world political turmoil and things like that have emanated from the families and peoples involved with world banks and stuff. So it's, yeah. it's actually really neat to have this additional force, this other option. Oh, absolutely. For value. That. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what, that's really what the core tenants of it are about. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I have a lot more questions on that train of thought, but I am going to flip back to our regularly scheduled programming sure. with question two, which is what's your proudest accomplishment? So let me think about this. I know I wrote this down. Mm. I know sometimes people come with like hardcore notes and halfway through, sometimes they just check the notes. And <laughs> Okay. So you know what? I'm going to say I did this jungle survival course um, about three years ago. The one in Guyana. Yeah. And it was led by a special British forces officer and it was me and him and then three other guys. And one of them was a logistics engineer for Doctors Without Borders. And then the other two were these trauma um, psychologists from Belgium, all men and me in the jungle for two weeks. Um, and this was like proper, proper jungle survival. Like we had to fly from a remote village to a remote area in the jungle and then hike six hours to another remote area and set up camp and we'd move once every four days. And I would say it was my proudest accomplishment because, or one of my proudest accomplishments because he survived. It was really <laughs> fucking uncomfortable. I was constantly uncomfortable in a state of borderline anxiety for 14 days. And like there are on, on many different levels. Number one, it was me with 
truly four extremely hard ass men who had been to war and who were like dark as fuck and like brilliant, truly heroes in their own capacity, but like just the type of people and the type of stories, the type of experiences I've never, I've never really been exposed to like real, some real dark stuff. Um, number two, there are so many fucking ways to die in the jungle. Like it is like choose your own adventure every goddamn second. Like do I hop over the giant killer bees nest to get to the river full of giardia because I have trench foot and my foot's going to get infected and potentially have to be amputated if I don't do that. Or do I walk back to my sleeping tent in the, like we would hang our, hang our sleeping bags in the trees again through six inches of water with my infected trench foot at seven o'clock at night when it's big, scary animal time. Cause that's when like the jaguars and the snakes and everything comes out. Like, like it was just like constant fucking choose your own wow. adventure. Um, and I'm sure there's tons of listeners out there in audience, you know, in your audience who have done much more impressive stuff. But I think, I think for me, my proudest accomplishment is just that I sat with that feeling of constant, constant discomfort um, for the entire time. That is pretty like damn impressive. It was really uncomfortable. I so, I don't blame you. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. It does sound like a, a, Reality game of would you rather for two weeks straight. Yeah, meets fear factor, meets survivor. Because I also have severe arachnophobia and there was like a crazy fucking jungle, like um, jungle spiders everywhere and like uh, howling monkeys that would attack your sleeping bags at night. And so again, I'm sure your audience members have done a lot more imp- impressive stuff, but that for me, just sitting with that discomfort for as long as I did. And I think learning a lot from it is, is one of the, again, I will never goddamn do it again, but <laughs> so, but like, yeah, good next. Yeah. Uh, were there a couple of practical tips that you can share that are sticking with you or coming back to you from that time? Um, I feel like a jittery war veteran who's like having flashbacks. Who's <laughs> um, the PTSD shit? Yeah, seriously. Oh, um, I would say that I think, well, do you mean in terms of like survival or just in yeah. terms of like, I mean, anything that comes to mind, anything that's practical. Cause I, I know in our listener land, there are plenty of people that are outdoorsy types. Yeah. And, I mean, you never know. I'm sure you learned a ton that I would not even be thinking of. Yeah. Well, so for one, um, jaguars and um, whatnot, they come out at night, but they actually are very docile animals. Like they're not out to hunt humans per se. The only animal that really actually does hunt humans on earth is polar bears. They actually like have a, have a, like they fiend for human blood. Oh, wow. Um, so you know, as scary as the thought was that there'd be jaguars circling our sleeping bags and whatnot at night, that it actually wasn't anything to be too scared of. Um, they're like big cats. Yeah. They, they really apparently are. They are, they are like big cats. Uh, killer bees are a real thing. And oh. I think from what I heard, remember hearing is cause again, we kept, we kept having, um, a couple of campsites where there were giant killer bee nests. They were actually invented by humans, killer bees as some in the fifties, some sort of experiment went wrong um, between a scientist trying to cross pollinate a regular bee, I think with a different type of species. And it effectively um, created these highly 
like these killer bees. Um, and then another thing I learned is that one of the most poisonous stings on the planet is a bullet ant. Um, and again, those were also nests of them everywhere in the jungle. They're about like, it's on my Instagram. They're about like four inches long and they have the most powerful sting in the animal kingdom. So if you get stung by a bullet ant, you're like, you're fucked like for at least 12 hours, wow. it causes like full body seizures and pain. So yeah, look out for bullet ants. Um, jaguars are nice. Don't try and pet them, but they're nice. And killer bees, um, were, uh, our man-made sort of cross pollination fucking with nature. Leave it to the human race to just annihilate ourselves I somehow. Know, right? Thank yeah. you, 1950s yeah, era seriously. people. Oh, man. Yeah. That sounds exhilarating. I'm yeah. getting like adrenaline being pumped into myself just listening to you talk about that. Yeah. So no, cool. And again, it was good, but it was very uncomfortable. Wow. Yeah. That's definitely an accomplishment to be proud of. Mm. <laughs> Let's move to question three, which is how do you balance work and life? And I know even trying to schedule our podcast, it seems like you are on the go and in high demand. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think I've had to learn it sort of the hard way. I don't know if you've ever had this, but you get to like my 20s were a bit of a shit show. Like I was very not connected to myself emotionally um, not doing things I loved. Again, thinking it was normal to feel dead inside nine to five, Monday to Friday. Um, I would say, so I had to really learn it the hard way that like, if you don't do the things you love, eventually you just burn out and crash and are like really just miserable, um, in life. So, uh, I definitely find balance cause I know what charges my batteries. Like I know that going out for dinner with girlfriends is like, what charges my batteries, like a really good book charges my batteries. If I can get away and do like a cool trip you know, charges my batteries. So I think just I'm able to find balance because I know I'm now able to identify like when I need that jolt of electricity, when I need that timeout. Um, and also work-life balance, like get off your phone. Like you have to, uh, you have to get off your phone, especially in my industry. It's 24 seven. Like you, you're dealing with clients or potential partners who are in the Philippines. So 12 hours ahead. Um, so I think sort of pacing myself with my phone time as well, because otherwise I, I, got, I got to a point when I first started blockchain and crypto where I was like answering emails at three o'clock in the morning. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when you're doing that constantly without getting a break, you start to go like nuts. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, your brain can just short circuit itself mm -hmm. because of that almost overstimulation. Mm -hmm, totally. How do you cut yourself off from your phone? Because this is a big thing that I've had to try to do in creative ways. And I'm sure many people listening yeah. feel the exact same thing. Yeah. So I've got um, the Instagram timer now where you get a note, like a notice from Instagram. You can put it on in your settings if you've spent more than 30 minutes in a day on Instagram. So I find that helps. Um, there's also timers you can set on your phone to basically shut off all your apps at 9 p.m. Again, just little things like that have helped. Um, I've also sort of made it um, like at least once a day to either have face-to-face -face time with a friend or a colleague who I like, or even a new person or, you know, a phone call instead of like a text conversation. And it's, again, none of this is super novel or genius what I'm saying, but I am, I will say it has definitely helped me get out of sort of that texting vortex that we can all get into and more back into like face-to-face -face time and human interaction. But I had to make a concerted effort, I'd say, to do that. 
Yeah. And quite frankly, it's great that you're talking about this because disconnecting from our devices has to be a mindfulness practice. Yeah. It's at crazy. This point. And yeah. it's almost like hip and it's like almost like a hipster thing when you go by a cafe and they say, we don't have Wi-Fi, talk to each other. It's yeah. like, oh, ha ha, how subversive is that? Yeah, And totally. you're like, oh, this is this is sad that that feels that that's subversive. That's where we've come. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, so good for you. It's something I'm trying to be better at myself. <laughs> Question four, can you tell us about a difficult moment in your life? Yeah. So I would say, um, as I just alluded to, uh, my, from about 25, maybe 24 to 28 was like a real shit show for me on like many levels personally. Um, uh, yeah, I'd say on many personal levels, like I grew up, I, I have a wonderful family, wonderful parents, but it's like everything just kind of exploded one day when I was 24. Um, and it just, uh, sort of like, like, I'll just put it this way that every time I called home, someone had gotten like my, you know, either my parents had gotten divorced, someone had died, someone had changed their gender. I won't get into that, but it was a real colorful time. And I didn't have the tools to deal with any of it. And so I just suppressed, suppressed, suppressed. And like that Madonna song, like express yourself, don't repress yourself. Cause it like really fucking comes back to bite you in the ass. Like I got to a point when I was 28 where I didn't know how to like connect with some of my best friends emotionally. Cause I just wasn't able to talk about my feelings. I just repressed and, um, yeah, like I burnt out. I just, I shut down. Like I had to, um, like really focus on like getting into therapy so I could learn how to talk about my feelings and process my feelings instead of just like either being angry or just shutting down and not letting some of the closest people in my life even know what was going on with me, if that makes any sense. So, um, yeah, I would say like from 24 to 28 was a real shit show. And I, my advice to anyone would be like, don't feel ashamed if you need to get help or therapy for anything like just do it, like invest in yourself, invest in your mind, invest in your soul. Um, cause it's so worth it. Like I have, I wasted a lot of time in those four years, just like repressing and not connecting with myself or with others. And again, like I said, I had a, I had an amazing life. I have an amazing life and friends and family, but I was just off fucking line for four years and it was not good. It was not good. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. That's hugely important. Yeah. And I mean, being able to invest in yourself and being able to speak to therapists, work with coaches, things like that, it's too bad that it is still stigmatized. However, it seems like we're edging in the right direction, oh, being able to encourage it and, and for talk sure, about it a bit for more. Sure. And I also firmly believe in the fact that you don't need to feel like you're at a point or a really low point in order to receive that help, even if you're you know, cruising along and things are fine then you still have a huge opportunity ahead of you to go from fine to great and excellent. Totally. Um, and having a third party who is not connected to your life at all, maybe call you on your bullshit or maybe give you ways of coping that don't involve just being real fucking angry at your mom all the time, you know, yeah. like it's, yeah. What was that moment that forced you to start taking steps to get out of that dark period? Yeah. So I would say, um, I mean, whatever, I guess I'll just, I really, 
thought about whether or not I was going to talk about this, but I might as well. Like, that's not a big deal. I would say, so part of my like, um, coping, not talking about my feelings thing. I, I, I got to a point where I felt so out of control in my life that I started taking out the one little bit of control I did have on food and, um, developed this like crazy raging eating disorder that I didn't even know I had, especially because growing up I was always, and I'm just being honest. Like I was like, I don't understand eating disorders. Like you should, like, I just thought girls who had eating disorders were these vapid individuals who just wanted to look like models. And that was stupid. You should focus on your brain. You should get a good career. I'm just being honest. I'm not saying I think that now, but no, but point that's is totally valid. I think a lot of people empathize with that when they are disassoci- disassociated from that in action. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I just got to a point where I was so, everything in my life was so out of control. And then I found that the only thing I could control is like whether or not there are fucking carrots on my plate. And then, but I didn't even know I had a problem until uh, literally I had um, four of my best friends and my parents and my cousin, like they were literally staged an intervention being like, oh wow, you, and it wasn't because I had like gotten so skinny. It was because like I couldn't, talk. Like I couldn't, I was so angry. I was so, I was still a very good friend to people, but like, I couldn't talk about my shit. I couldn't, I was like constantly lying because this, this cycles of not wanting to show up to dinner because there'd be food there. And then I couldn't control what was going on in my surroundings. And like, I couldn't hold a relationship. Cause it's like, when you can't be honest with yourself in your life, you can't be honest with other people. And it's, it just all came to a head. And then, yeah, they basically just had an intervention with me. And, you know, it definitely was a wake up call that I was like, oh, okay. Like I have a problem. Like here are nine very rational people who are telling me I have a fucking problem. Like it's like, it's time to listen. So, um, yeah. So then that started my road of like actually taking therapy seriously of actually getting into meditation and spirituality and like realizing that I didn't just want to be this hardened angry chick and or control obsessed um yeah i'm smiling because you are so lucky to have those people in your life for sure that is for sure and and many people listening have certainly and are probably going through varying in different periods of that type of challenging road and i'm so happy for you that you were able to have people in your life to help you come to that realization and help you now and continue make the impressive impact that you are doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the biggest part of getting over that for me was just understanding that like, again, it wasn't about being skinny. It was just about control. Like I was so control obsessed and angry, 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 but I didn't, um, yeah, I just, I didn't know how to deal with anger in a very healthy way. And so it definitely helped me do that. That's awesome. And yeah, it's very normal. And especially for Many people who, as an example, have experienced some degree of trauma, Mm -hmm. that desire for control 
is sort of a defense mechanism. It's, oh, for you know, sure. It's, exactly. It's yeah, you them. get it. You yeah. totally get it. Yeah, totally. And it's similar conversations that we've had on the podcast in, in the past. We've had some really great coaches, like life coaches. Yeah. We've had, you know, a, a really great woman, um, Dana Ferrant. She is a former dominatrix, now life and business coach. Cool. And so like she, she talks very openly about like dealing with your shit, going back and dealing with your trauma and using and harnessing that power that you have to more or less, you know, in short form, like kick ass and everything that you do and entrepreneurship and all that stuff, which is great. But, but I think, and probably what she was saying and what you're saying is that you have to like know how to look at it instead of just trying to repress it. And then, um, and that, that was a process that took me a real long time to get into, but for sure, I, And you're never done. No, God, no, no. But it's, um, life gets a lot better when you're not trying to like hide or pretend that everything's okay. And yeah, so. That's it. Mm -hmm. Being human and being real are so important. And I can't speak for other companies or things like that. It seems like it's now the the quote unquote trend and some of the companies that, you know, I operate in and I'm you know affiliated with. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, we have to be vulnerable. But sometimes I've even seen that vulnerability in fact be inauthentic. Oh my so God. It's like the force cheering. And I'm like, no, no, that's not that's you're missing the point. That's so. but that's who I was for like most of my twenties at the expense of my ability to have like a serious romantic relationship relationship because I like again if you can't connect with yourself like you can't connect with someone else because people can smell a phony right and I was going through the motions of vulnerability and authenticity but I wasn't I was totally bullshitting even myself um so what are you doing now like getting getting out of that really challenging like I would say like the the apex of that challenging mountain. Yeah. You know, and hopefully that's not something that you have to revisit. Mm-hmm. What are you doing now to keep things in check and perspective? What are some practices or things that you do? Well, I hate to be cliche and say meditation, but <laughs> honestly, honestly, <laughs> Deepak is my boy, Eckhart Tolle. Um, every morning I try and read these quotes from Deepak and Eckhart Tolle. Um I'd say on even things like getting into an industry and taking risks and being um, in a place where I actually am excited about my life and my job um, helps as well. But for sure, meditation, um, I've always been pretty spiritual, but meditation quotes, I mean, like I have sort of anchoring statements on my mirror about what I want in life, creative visualization for sure. I mean, I'd say taking five to 10 minutes a day to think about what the next year looks like, what the next five years look like, like what you really want is another thing I do quite a bit. I journal. Um, like I, I just, I talk honestly with my friends and family. Um, and I'd say all those things, all those things definitely help. And also running, like I'm also do running and I've gotten into yoga and that sort of thing. So all of those have definitely helped anchor for sure. But as you alluded to earlier in this conversation, it really is daily work. Like it's daily work. Like you have to choose daily what lens you're going to use to look at the world. You have to choose whether or not this is going to be your worst day or what, or whether or not it's your best day because you've learned a new lesson or you've learned a new way of maybe doing something differently, et cetera. Oh, Tony Robbins too. I went to a Tony Robbins session. Again, (laughs) I know cliche, he's not for everybody, but he was... Amazing. He was amazing. 
Oh, man. Yeah, this is really, really helpful, even for myself. And this is part of the reason why I selfishly absolutely love the podcast is even though, yes, it's my podcast and I invite these wonderful guests on, I personally get so much out of these conversations. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge advocate of doing personal work and daily practices and, and great things like that. Yeah. But there are times where I forget myself. Totally. There are times when shit will fall from the sky and my first reaction to it will not be a healthy or positive one. Yeah. Even though it almost always works itself out and, and very sure. often it works out even better. So I, I really appreciate you sharing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. You're very welcome. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uplift things a little bit with question five, which is who or what inspires you the most? Um. So I'm going to say that my dad's family. I mean, I have a lot of role models, like even celebrities who I absolutely love. Like, like I who? love Angelina Jolie. Oh yes. I know she's not everybody's favorite. I love Whatever. her. I love her. Adopting like a bunch of kids from different countries all over the world. She's a UN ambassador. She's a fucking babe, a little bit crazy, but I think authentic in her own way. So I, I really do love Angelina Jolie. I dressed up as her or Laura Croft for many Halloween. Yeah. Actually. Amazing. Yeah. yeah so you're like fan. probably hot as hell. Like she's amazing. <laughs> Why? Thank you. Why yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, I, so I would definitely say though, who inspires me, I'm going to say my granddad. So he, and I'd say my dad's, family as a unit. So they're like Newfie Irish, like off the rock. And they, so my granddad, I think owned one of the largest um, grocery store chains in the province for five or 10 years. And point is it was shut down and they lost everything. So my dad and his like seven brothers, they went from having everything to having literally nothing. Um, And it really forced them. And this is when there are like anywhere from six to about 13. Um, so there were seven of them between the ages of six and 13. And, uh, damn, there's the Irish. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Plentiful. Yeah. yeah, seriously. Um, all that Catholic guilt. Yep. But so they lost everything, but I think it really helped them build into a cohesive unit and really support each other and get each other's back. Like my dad, something like that he had been in 21 houses before he was 21 he, one time they had to move into a crack house cause they, my granddad just couldn't, couldn't get work and let alone enough work to support seven, seven kids. Um, so I remember my dad has a story of like sweeping condoms off the floor of the place that they were moving into. Wow. But what inspires me is that they are such a unit of support. Even like my granddad, like went a bit senile, but no one talked about him being senile or having lost his marbles. I lit like we literally just kept treating him like he was granddad that I actually grew up basically with a senile grandfather who was always in a really good mood, luckily. But I actually thought that that's what grandfathers were like. Like they were supposed to sort of just have landmines of sentences that you sat through and like <laughs> jokes you didn't understand. And, you know, really the cheese not fully being on his cracker, but we as a, and there's, there's, I think there's like 38 of us on my dad's side. No one ever treated granddad differently. No one ever talked about the fact that granddad had kind of lost his marbles. Um, there's just, it was just an environment of like support, like just constant support. Um, 
you know, even like one of my uncles was having a really hard time with something and my dad and all of his brothers were, you know, dropped everything to be there with him on this random Saturday morning. And I just, so I think that, that sort of unit and way they deal with life inspires me, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like you just sort of rally and focus on the good and not, um, like the lens you choose really is everything in life. So and the resilience mm-hmm. to be able to to go through a pretty tremendous shift in earning potential and job and family and even location like talking about people who either immigrated or people who had to move around especially with large families mm-hmm. that bootstrapping mm-hmm. nature and culture is is something that for many, uh, many people that are in a younger generation, uh, are, are very removed from. And I like so, what you said, bootstrapping culture. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what inspires me. I'd say about my dad's side of the family. And you, you said that perfectly. It is like this bootstrapping emotional culture. Yeah. Like you just like figure it out and like make, and everyone I've, they've, really instilled the value of like finding humor in this situation instead of like feeling sorry for yourself. So yeah, that I think really has inspired me in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and also just having the numbers of people to rally around you, um, talking about us being kind of siloed and stuck to our phone and not investing the time and true and authentic, authentic relationships. yeah. Yeah. It feels like this is a bit of a theme Totally. Yeah. It's an important reminder, especially for anyone who hasn't been doing that. They've been pushing it to the side because they're focused too much on other things. That's, that's a touching real life moment. Yeah. You need to bring back in. Those are the types of things that when you are at the end of your life, you know, hopefully we all get there. Right. Yeah. Um, When you think back on the things that you regret, it's like, not investing enough in the people who you truly want to invest in. Yeah, for sure. Amazing. That's Mm. awesome. Sounds like your family was super great. Mm -hmm. Is super great. Yeah, I'm lucky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's move to question, question six, which is what is the most adventurous thing you have ever done? And as I was doing research on you, aside from this jungle adventures, jungle survival course you did, you seem to have lots of adventurous interests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, there's lots of people who do like interesting stuff. I wouldn't say mine are in particularly that no, crazy. They're super but cool. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I do again, I I like to um I think that the real growth happens when you're doing the heavy lifting and the uncomfortable stuff and again, I'm I don't know, I don't need to sound cliché, but I do think that life be, like begins outside of your comfort zone. I really do. My so, motto is get uncomfortable. Yeah, right? Like I totally agree with that. Um so for sure, like I I worked on a shark research boat um in South Africa for a little bit, volunteered there. Um and that was interesting cuz I have a, like I had an extreme fear of sharks and I just generally hate the fucking water. Um so I thought, you know, why not really sort of get up and close with them and like see what that's like. And really sharks are not aggressive animals. Like being in 
on a shark boat with sharks all around you is kind of like hanging out at the water cooler at work. Like they literally just sort of mill about. <laughs> they maybe have like a little nibble of food. They're not threatening. Um, You're like, that's just Bob. That's, that's yeah, Joanne. Right. He's just you know. going to say hi. Um, <laughs> and obviously a lot of focus on that was on like shark conservationism, which it was very important. Um, and you know, like I'm running a marathon in Petra in a week and a half. Oh, in Jordan. Yeah. In Jordan. So I'm like, I'm excited to do that. But, um, obviously, you know, my boyfriend and my family and friends are like not exactly thrilled about it. It is a very, um, unique place to be traveling right now, but I think that that's where you have, yeah, I think I'm going to be fine. But also that's where you have, when you go to sort of these off the beaten path places or, um, things that aren't particularly trendy or like Condé Nast reviewed, that's when I think you have the most, most authentic and growth oriented experiences and meet the most authentic people. And, um, yeah. So that's a little bit about that. I completely agree, especially while you're traveling, um, you know, growing up, in a first world, especially if you, know, you had support from your family, yeah, and, totally. you, know, you weren't living in, in absolute poverty as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the most transformational opportunity for sure. when you are elsewhere. And then when you're being served with all sorts of fun curveballs. Yeah. Like I remember when I was in Thailand with my best friend, we had all sorts of hilarious misadventures for sure of everything that that happened and didn't happen and all of the missed connections we were stuck on a boat in a storm and yeah. missed all of our flights and yeah, so yeah. we end up you know going to some random podunk hotel in this tiny town that I couldn't even tell you the name of for the life of me right and that's um, like living you know? like yeah. that's it was probably like one of the most fun random unplanned experiences absolutely yeah and I mean, you know, you, looking back on it now, you're like, ha, that was ha, 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 that was a fun memory. But in the moment, you're like, this is awful. I don't even know if we're going to make it out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. to your point earlier. So that that is super cool. And I'm so excited for your Petra trip. Yeah, it's also um, I'll say so I did I did an ultra marathon in Greenland. Uh, now which, you're training for the marathons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so Greenland was also insane, but. I also love like when you, when you sort of do different uh, forms of travel or go to different places that a lot of people don't go to, you meet real unique individuals that you would never have normally met. Um, like I ran this ultra with a bunch of um, Navy SEALs and with this like pretty much this princess from Zimbabwe who was 22 and honestly is like one of the oldest souls and like most enlightened humans I've ever met in my life. But Again, when you when you sort of go off the beaten path, you you meet actually very like minded individuals who are probably seeking the same thing that you are. Um, and uh, yeah, I would I would also sort of very I would also say that traveling alone is something everyone should do at some point in their life because when you're alone, you're not on anyone else's schedule. Your lens is not potentially influenced by their lens, and it's it's scary sometimes trying to figure out stuff by yourself. And so I definitely would recommend at some point everyone should do something on their own um, that maybe they're not comfortable doing. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. What was your first solo trip? Uh, my first solo trip was India. Oh. When I was 25, I went and worked with street children in Kolkata, which was also very good because um, it also helped me realize like how kind of like white arrogant right, right. First world 
privileged, arrogant I was to think that I'm going to go to India and like save these street children and, and take oh my myself. God, I'm a fucking hero. <laughs> so you're not, you're an arrogant white person who thinks that they can change the world, um, with their big thoughts and privileged positions and, yeah, but but again, it was also it was a it was a great experience. It was a great experience. I loved India. It's India is very raw and very unforgiving for its beauty and its ugly, ugly truth. So, but that's what yeah. I loved about it. Yeah, I went uh, I went over the holidays this past year, and I I also loved India for so many different reasons. But you're right. There is this there's this interesting dichotomy of the wealth yeah. and lots of very rich families and almost like lives that have tremendous excess yeah. compared and contrasted almost like right next door with that very deep level of poverty. Oh, children like doing backstrokes in like yeah. the slum in like pools of human cess and sewage. Yeah. yeah. But that's one of the best things about India, I think, is that it's so unforgiving and it's like, this is who we are. Like, yeah. and I, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. And then the amazing people that you meet, to your point. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you keep in touch with any of the people that you, you from, meet along from these Greenland, adventures? I do. I do. Because, again, they were all very extreme and very successful individuals um, whose sort of outlook on life just really resonate with me. Like, they're all still doing crazy shit and athletic stuff. And um, one of them just won a Oscar, I think, for directing a movie that's on Netflix. I don't think I'm allowed to say his name, but um Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful for like the people that you I meet who sort of seek the same things I do in terms of personal growth on some of these trips. Yeah. The world becomes very small when you start to travel it. Yeah. Um, I like I'm a dancer. That's what I love to do in my spare time. And dancing is a really great excuse to go travel to, you know, attend dance events. And then it's a really easy way to meet people. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly you start looking at your friend circle and, you know, even your Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Apparently Facebook is not cool anymore. Yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, oh, wow. Like I, I, have this really special network that is worldwide. And if I want to ask a question, I'm going to get answers from the entire world. Totally. It is magical. Yeah. It's awesome. For sure. Cool. All right. Question seven. What do you attribute your success to? So I would say with the exception of when I was like a dead inside, just angry amoeba from 24 to 28. Um, I would say I'm pretty committed to, I'd say I'm a pretty like curious individual that I've always sort of sought out new things, new ideas, new people um, ever since I was little. And I've always sort of been more interested in people than focused on being interesting myself, if that makes any sense. Like I find people very interesting and I would contribute that to my success because, sorry, success because um, it's enabled me to connect with people and bond with people and ultimately get the jobs and the new ideas and the friends and the whatever, just from, just from learning more about who that person is. So um, I would say being interested in people is, and genuinely interested in people is something that I would attribute my success to. For sure. 
I love what you're sharing because it really ties back very nicely to some of the themes that you've already talked about in the podcast. So almost focusing on the journey as opposed to the outcome, Mm -hmm. uh, which seems to be something that comes up quite a bit. So like focusing less on the fact that, say, as an example, you're a woman woman, and more about the incredible work that you're doing and doing that and, and just by virtue of focusing on the incredible work that you're doing, the influence that you do have, then you will achieve that success. For sure. So I see that parallel to what you just shared here. Who is the most interesting person you've ever met? Um, So I'm going to say this princess from Zimbabwe who I met on Greenland. Her name's Jess. I was 30 at the time that I met her. She was 21. Um, I believe her father, so she was originally from the UK and her father, I think, sold one of the biggest hedge funds in the UK. And so she came from a lot, a lot, a lot of money, but she was one of the most um, well-read, unique individuals I've ever met in my life. Um, She actually had become like an Instagram star just from posting about her life. And she had something like 15,000 followers. And this is back in 2015. So that was a lot. That was before Instagram really took off. Um, But she deleted it because she didn't like sort of what came with that. She was a pilot. She um, was on this Greenland trip alone, running it by herself, this ultra marathon. Um, And she was really an old soul and someone who was so committed to personal growth that I was just really impressed that she had, um, that she was the person she was really at 22. So that's. I, I, I love that because I've always been told myself that I'm an old soul and I just joke that I'm an old man in a young lady's body. Like give me, give me a glass of scotch and a cigar. And yeah, a seriously, nice, you're, you oh know, my God, Dean that's Martin so record on, scotch I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like just give me a record on the record player and I'm super happy. Like give yeah, me, give me a bow tie awesome. and some suspenders. So it's, <laughs> I, I empathize. And those are typically the types of people that I, I find I personally connect to the most and I'm totally biased in that. So that's wonderful that you had an opportunity to meet her. Yeah. Like she's so full of wisdom and like just obsessed with learning and reading. And anyways, yeah, I've just, I would say that that person is an old soul that I met um, who I continue to learn from, even though she's like 10 years younger than me. And yeah. My catchphrase is, um, I'm an old soul, but I'm a student of life. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. No, I like, like that a lot. It's a good catchphrase. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, I love it. And where my mind was going a little bit as well and, and focusing about you know being curious and at, you know, being able to take a genuine interest in people and more about that process as opposed yeah. to the outcome is with dating. So I find so many people, they they go out there, they're on apps and they're like, this is my goal. I'm going to find myself a yeah. husband, partner, wife, whatever. And they're so fixated on that outcome that they almost totally disregard the process of getting to know that person and being able to go on that journey together. It's just totally like or letting um, moments play out organically. Um, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying about you meet those people who are like, I need to be married by 30, pregnant by 32, <laughs> 2.5 kids by 35. 
And again, maybe that's, that's, that works for some people, but I'm, so I'm 35 and I have friends now who are going through their first divorce is because they had that mentality of, I have to have to find the guy by 26. We need to do, have done this, you know, this, that, and the other by 30. And now they're in their mid thirties and realize that they're not in love. They don't know themselves. They've changed and weren't able to, didn't even have the tools because they hadn't focused on making the tools together as a couple to weather change together or to talk about change. Um, and yeah, now they're ultimately getting sort of the reverse of what they wanted, which is divorce and drama and that sort of thing. But, um, and they're surprised by that. Shocked. Like, like, oh shocked. no. Like shocked. <laughs> yeah. And again, I do, I'm sure I have to work on myself daily as well, but I think that, um, yeah, with dating, a lot of people get trapped in what it should look like and what it should feel like instead of actually like what they want or what the true connection is. So you're totally right. What kind of role do you play in your friendships? Meaning as an example, if you see that friend of yours in that, oh, I need to do this by this time in my life, this by this time in my life, and you just see them kind of going off and you're like, what are you doing? Because you have gone through elements of this yeah, oh, in your time. Yeah, like, do you, time. Are you the type of person, do you try to speak up or do you push back on them? Do you challenge them? No, or? I'm blunt AF. Like, <laughs> I am so blunt. Good. <laughs> Almost to a fault. Like definitely, I wouldn't say I have any super sensitive friends because like, um, or at least, at least I think I've, my friends are very understanding that what I say comes from a good place in terms of wanting the best for them. But yeah, I'm blunt as hell and it definitely has gotten to me, gotten me into trouble before, but I think that I'm pretty confident in saying whatever it is that I say, cause nothing I ever say is coming from a place of like not wanting the best for someone. Yeah. Um, that's another thing I really learned in my like super dark 24 to 28 was the more time you spend like judging and analyzing someone else's behavior is the more, um, is like one less minute that you're taking away from focusing on yourself. It's like one less minute that you're taking away from focusing on like the abundance and creativity that is available to you from the universe and in nature and just, um, that you can find within yourself. So, uh, yeah, I'm blunt as hell, but I think that what drives me is that I know I'm saying it from a good place and not from a place of jealousy or ego or just like pure judgment. So, but yeah, my friends would definitely say I'm blunt as hell, but I'm very supportive. I'm very supportive. I will pick up the phone at two o'clock in the morning. If you need to cry about your ex fucking not liking your new boyfriend and causing hell and that sort of thing. You sound like the type of perfect friend that everyone needs to have in their lives. Definitely not perfect, but yeah, I will pick <laughs> up the phone, but I'll be like blunt as fuck. So, no, but it's yeah. good. But those are the elements that you want because we've gotten very, um, many of us have told ourselves that we should just be surrounded by people who almost tell us what we need, what we want to hear as opposed yeah. to what we need to hear. Oh, totally. And that's a problem. But so. it's also reciprocal. Like, I don't think I would ever... I would never want a friend to just tell me bullshit to my face about shit that I needed to focus on. Like, you know, like I want, I expect that sort of blunt candid feedback in return as well. Like I mm -hmm. very much value that. So it's 100% reciprocal. Like, yeah. yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to some of the cryptocurrency questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
because there's it's so interesting. And I was actually curious, and I'm heavily biased because this is a podcast produced out of Toronto in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, where does Canada rank in cryptocurrency activity or market share compared to the rest of the world? So that's a really interesting question. Um, so South Korea, actually 33% of the population either holds cryptocurrency, uses cryptocurrency. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that South Korea in general is just, just sort of has like a very strong technology gaming um, culture. Like it's not uncommon for an 80 year old woman to have a crypto wallet and to be, um, to know how to navigate cryptocurrency and use it and whatnot. So I would say Asia is definitely sort of the leader um, in the crypto space. But yeah, Canada, I mean, Ethereum, which is one of the largest by market cap cryptocurrencies, and what a lot of sort of different projects are built on this um, protocol called Ethereum was created in Canada. Um, one of the reasons why, though, I don't think Canada is ex particularly a leader, I would say, on the global stage is from a regulation perspective. We haven't really figured it out yet. So it's not very palatable yet for people to set up crypto companies and blockchain companies in Canada, like Malta, Bermuda, Estonia, Jersey Islands have much more... Um, lax, like Switzerland, much more lax laws and regulations that um, incentivize businesses to sort of go there. But mm. yeah, Canada, we like we we founded one of the biggest, most influential, biggest impact of cryptos um, in the industry. We just weren't able to sort of keep those projects here and the because of our regulators. So fair enough. I guess it's a dual edged sword. It's like, yeah. you know, don't want to go too far off the deep end. And in fact, it actually lends itself well to another question I had, which was, are you concerned about the illicit application for cryptocurrency um, as an example, using it for stuff that might be on like the dark web or things like drugs or yeah, whatever? So it's, it's so funny because Bitcoin is actually one of cryptos are actually quite traceable. Like there actually is an audit trail because you have to remember that open source projects. So like Bitcoin, mm -hmm. Ethereum, and like pretty much most of these cryptocurrencies, there is a public bulletin board. So you actually can follow trails of who transacted what at what time. And yes, sometimes it's into sort of anonymous receivers um, and senders, but it is actually much more auditable in a lot of ways than the US dollar. Mm. Um, but for sure, I mean, there's a couple of cryptos like Zcash and Monero that are specifically privacy focused. Um, and I know some of the major exchanges, I believe it was Coinbase, just unlisted it, unlisted this one um, crypto Zcash just because they weren't able to justify to regulators the ability for people to transact with it because it was so privacy-based, you really couldn't get a sense as to who had done what using this particular crypto. Oh, wow. Um, so, so I guess, so sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but I guess what I would say is I think that there's a lot more noise about it being dark web-related than is actually the truth about how these protocols work, that there are ways to audit. There are a lot of companies that are figuring out how to audit, how to trace, um, so it's, 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 it's not as sort of dark web drug and gang focused as um, I think the media would have a lot of people believe. Yeah. It's probably coming from the same people who don't have as great an understanding exactly. of it. Exactly. They like, just want to sensationalize yeah. some 
parts, but not the whole, without understanding the whole of what this sort of technology is about. And it sounds like, because I I would have thought that some of the companies, as an example, that are trying to regulate it might not be able to keep up at the rate at which it is evolving. So there would be a lot of loopholes and things like that, that quote unquote sketchy people could exploit. Well, I think one of the frustrating things too um, is in the US, the FATF, they're, they're proposing some rules that are effectively analog rules, but to a digital technology. So it really does not fit, Mm. but they're trying to just sort of take what's worked in the past and apply that to sort of the future. And it's not, that's not scalable. That's completely to the um, detriment of what this technology can do and the benefits Mm. it can have. If you're just sort of handcuffing it and putting, trying to put it into like a horse and buggy and tell it that that's how it's supposed to drive on the road. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah. Just, Put that cryptocurrency in some pantaloons and a bonnet. Exactly. Make it churn its own butter. (laughs) And like, that's just not realistic. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like it's not. Yeah. Oh, cool. And on the flip side, what are the most exciting applications for cryptocurrency? Either ones that are happening right now or have yet to happen that maybe you are seeing on the horizon? Yeah. So one of the things that I'm really excited about is how crypto could potentially um, help marginalized people establish reputation and greater financial inclusion um, into really sort of any kind of financial markets or the economy at whole. So let's say, for example, if I'm a Rohingya in Myanmar, I'm not entitled to national identity. I'm not entitled to a passport. And under the current way of doing business, there is no way for me to participate economically, right? On a global scale or even in terms of my own my own city or my own country. Um, so oftentimes that pushes people to work on the fringes of society and in dark markets and in sort of unlicensed and illicit areas, but that's just because they have no formal way of identifying themselves. So some of the projects that crypto is focused on is saying, okay, so yes, you may not have a traditional form of government identity, or maybe you're a refugee and your passport and your birth certificate were burned. What are the other ways that we can help you identify who you are. So um, so I work for Shift Network. And one of the things that we're f- focused on is unlocking economies of trust, but by using sort of a trust anchor model. So I may be a Rohingya who doesn't have a formal identity, but I have a local merchant who every two weeks can attest, I bring him the best possible cucumbers or the best possible bushels of corn he's ever had that he can then sell, but that merchant can attest on my behalf to let's say a micro loan um, or ensure that yes, this person, I know who this person is. Here's their credibility in terms of the product that they delivered to me, you know, week after week, day after day, they should be getting a micro loan. I will attest on their behalf that they are who this person is. So, um, and then subsequently that micro insurer can say, okay, so I don't know who this person is, but I know who that merchant is. I know that he always pays his premiums. I know he's trustworthy. So I'm going to, I'm going to take his, take his, um, attestation, his vouch for this person and extend a loan. So that's, I don't know if I explained that sort of succinctly enough, but there's just cryptocurrency is solving for a lot of the problems right now with respect to people who don't have formal identity, um, and providing 
avenues for more formal integration into the financial services system. That is really, really exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it really, I think it's, it's pretty interesting. And that's part of one of the, one of the areas that excites me the most. Yeah. Yeah. Because those are, those populations represent more people than many of us could probably even think of or consider. So there's actually 1.7 billion people in the wow. world who don't have formal identity. And again, if, if, if you don't have formal identity, you're not going to get a bank account. You like your options are very limited in terms of being able to participate in a, you know, regulatory compliant way with mm -hmm. the global economy. And it just sort of reinforces your marginalization, right? If you don't, if you can't participate formally, like you're obviously going to have to seek other avenues to live and survive and provide for your family. So, so yeah, I think crypto and blockchain is solving a lot of things um, for those 1.7 billion people who don't have, um, some of the uh, good fortune that we have living in the country that we live in. Wow. That is incredible. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have even thought about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know the baseline of what I see in the first world news articles about cryptocurrency. So this is really enlightening. Yeah. And thinking about that, how does one get involved in cryptocurrency or blockchain, someone who has never had any uh, any experience with it before? Yeah, I would say, um, we alluded to this earlier, you know, sometimes when you start the research, you almost leave more confused mm -hmm. than when you first started it. <laughs> um, but I would, I would, you know, just, just keep up with the research. Um, for example, you know, there's a couple of podcasters and like sort of major influencers you can follow who can sometimes explain things for you, um, like this guy, Naval Ravikant, Anthony Pompliano. Um, but if, if you're just diligent about your research, even just things like what is Bitcoin? Why should I care about it? Google's, there's actually some pretty good stuff that's come up now on Google about that. Um, and yeah, just, just keeping an open mind and staying curious if you're serious about getting into crypto and blockchain is, is sort of the best way to, to get into it, I would say. And what are the biggest risks of getting involved? Um, so I would definitely say personally, I had to learn the hard way. Um, it's still very volatile, extremely volatile. So in 2017, I invested a pretty large sum into Bitcoin and Ethereum and it immediately skyrocketed. Like I think $50,000 turned into $134,000 in three weeks. And I was like, oh my God, I'm genius. This is <laughs> the best thing I've ever done in my life. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and that was when Bitcoin was trading at like $20,000. And then it probably like four months later was down to like five grand. And so I had lost beyond what I had even initially invested. So I think the biggest risks are, you know, this, this asset class, this technology is still, it's definitely getting its legs, but it's still very volatile. So do not, I would not invest your life savings. Like if you're going to invest, if you're going to play in it, just make sure it's play money that you can afford to lose everything. Cause mm. be it, um, you know, regulators not allowing you to trade it in your home country, or again, just the volatility of the asset class itself. Like you could lose literally everything, um, overnight. It's still very volatile. So that's something to definitely be cognizant of, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a very real risk. I mean, you know, people think about that in the stock market, but this seems to be an extra level, more volatile. Oh, considering yeah, absolutely. Where it's at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. That's really helpful.
I'm going to switch back to our official questions with question eight, which is what item or items could you never live without? Oh my God. My notes section in my phone, like right now I'm having, my phone is just completely whack and going haywire on me and I'm, it's giving me like anxiety. I have to go get it fixed tomorrow. Um, my notes section on my phone, that's where I write all my ideas, my goals, my dreams, my daily to-do list, people, you know, interesting notes from podcasts I've listened to conversations I've had with friends or people, um, daily rituals I use to anchor my mindset to the right direction. Uh, so that way I say, I would say is sort of the most, I would really need my notes section in my phone. I really need that app on my phone, which is pathetic that I'm saying it's an app on a phone, but really, truly that's, that's what's most, that's what I need. That's my most important sort of precious object to me. I mean, it's the digital notebook. It really is. And I mean, I see that you have an actual notebook here. I do, but this is just like inspiring pieces of news. Like I'm a big fan of post-its and some to-do lists, but like the real, (laughs) like the real like crux of who I am and like my ideas and whatever are all in my, in my notes app so that I need it. I mean, I I think that's smart because it's Mm -hmm. pretty easy to lose a book, but if it's backed up to a cloud, hopefully it's a little bit harder to lose. I'm laughing because I have my pile of post-it notes. Anyone who records with me, they know I'm a big fan of my my post-it notes. I love a post-it. Yeah. It's so satisfying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The environmentalists are like, no, you are wasting trees. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, God. Uh, Question nine. Is there anything you'd like to promote? general about yourself, where you work, what you do, things you're interested in, Um, anything? No, honestly, no, (laughs) I have to be honest. No, you're so so humble. Yeah, no, no, I, no, I would just say, um, no, I'm going to pass on that one. There's nothing in particular. I feel like I need, I think I've talked quite a bit on this podcast, but sort of who I am and like what interests me. Um, I would definitely say, okay, you know what? I'll say crypto and blockchain. I'd say like, keep an open mind about this. There's a lot of negative news in the media, um, but this really truly does have the potential to disrupt all different parts of society. And I think that um, just just be on the lookout for, for it and just know a little bit about it because it, it really is going to change the world. Boom. And I I know you are a bit of a a thought leader in this sphere. Is there a place online where people can learn more about your thoughts and your involvement in this world or not really? Yeah. I mean, I'd say I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, My founder, (laughs) (laughs) my founder uh, is a very interesting guy. He's 29 years old. His name is Joseph Weinberg. I would he's someone who I would definitely sort of look up and, and research some of the podcasts that he's done. He's, um, a real alt thinker. Um, one of the original gangsters who, you know, sorry, not actual gangsters, but like, Oh like he, he's like, he's an OG. <laughs> People are clutching their pearls right now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, he's an OG. Um, in terms of he's been in the Bitcoin space since 2009 and he's done a lot of impressive things, I think in terms of, with the OECD and the I and FATF and just different governments around the world trying to help them build regulations and understand the benefits of this tech and what it means. So, um, yeah, I'd say he's, he's someone to sort of look up and follow. Uh, yeah. That's super cool. And question 10, Mm -hmm. we're already at question 10. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. 
What is a lesson you learned the hard way that you'd like to share with our listeners? So I would definitely say, and I alluded to this before, um, the more time you spend worrying about what the other guy is doing is taking away from time that you could be spending making yourself better, making your life better, making learning more or, um, uh, just growing yourself. Like if, if you're running the race and you're constantly looking back at the other guy, you're not going to get to the finish line fast enough, in my opinion. And that's something I really had to learn. Um, again, more so in my dark period from 24 to 28, when I was just like so angry and judging and analyzing and this, that, and the other little did I know I was like regressing in my own life and in my own ability to look at my own shit. You know what I mean? Cause I was so focused on other people. Um, so yeah, I think that that's what I would leave, you know, sort of stay open, stay curious, stay interested and like, just, just stay focused on, on, on your race and your path. Cause you're going to fall off it if you're constantly looking at the other guy who's behind you. Mm-hmm. And as far as learning, aside from what might be super obvious, everything that's happening within your industry right now, is there anything else, any other spheres or themes or things like that, that you are hungry and learning right now or anything that's been particularly enlightening to you lately? Oh, you mean in terms of like just, just what I'm really super interested in right now? Something that charges your batteries to use your words. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm really interested in energy work. Um, so not even just like chakra study and different energy parts in the body, but even like, I think it's Higgs Boston or Boggs Higson theory. Um, like string theory about how we're all sort of energy in the way that two completely unrelated entities can actually work in sync and in harmony. So yeah, I'd say anything to do with sort of quantum physics or energy, be it spiritual or between two people or just literally in the, in the physical and metaphysical world is like very interesting to me right oh, now. Wow. Um, I also really appreciated your little wiggle when you said string theory. Yeah. Had like a little shimmy I don't shake. know how else to say. I know I'm I know. butchering like the, the definition here, but it's no, basically no, it like good. when one string like wiggles or it's like another string or another entity can like emulate that behavior and like, how does that, how does that happen? How does that work? Um, yeah. Energy work is very interesting to me or even just, you know, like when you meet someone and there's something about their vibe, you just like, like, what is that? Like, what is that, that you can pick up on or that that person's emanating? Like, how does that work? What's the science behind that? Or what's the spiritual, what's the esoteric drivers behind that? That that's something I'm very interested in right now. And I'm sort of doing a little bit more research on. Yeah. That's actually something I've never thought about consciously, but something that I've always thought I, I've excelled in personally is like you meet someone, you get that vibe or that energy and you're like, I, I either really like this person and I gel with them or there's something that's off. Totally. But yeah. like, what is that? And then yeah. how do you harness more of like being able to tune into that, but also being able to like provide that to mm-hmm. situations and people you meet? Like, that's very interesting. It's that's true. something I'm super interested in right now. Yeah. Cause some people call that intuition and in other cases, what, what does that even mean? Yeah. Oh. Another thing you just reminded me, another thing mm. I'm really interested in right now is um, the brain gut connection about how people or research is coming out that, um, you know, all sort of 
mental disorders, even Alzheimer's or depression or whatnot actually starts in the gut, that your gut is actually like your second brain um, and how something like 95% of serotonin is actually formulated in your gut and travels up to your brain via the vagus nerve, which is sort of like a highway between your brain and stomach. Um, And I think just sort of looking at the repercussions of diet and what you put in your body, how that actually can affect mood and your brain and your ability to think certain ways um, is another thing I'm really interested in. But yeah. You are an absolute incredible creature. I am so happy you came on the podcast. I mean, you, yeah, I'm so happy that you're doing this podcast. Like I think it's important we need, especially in Canada. I mean, I think there needs to be more people like you reaching out, doing research on people and just getting conversations going. Um, I don't think there's a lot of people doing what you're trying to do. Thank you. And that is really exciting. Thank you. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure and a delight. I have learned a ton from you. You have inspired me and I'm going to ride that high as long as I can. Okay, great. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Find us on Facebook at Legit Lady Podcast. That's L-E-G-I-T-L-A-D-Y Podcast. And on Instagram at Legit Lady Podcast. On Twitter at Legit Lady Pod. That's Legit Lady P-O-D. And please rate and comment on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you love what you hear, share it broadly and proudly. Thanks, everyone.